Second Corinthians chapter three, and I've entitled morning's message from glory to glory. And I'm gonna give a short review of um, chapters one and two and something that uh, is gonna be important for you to understand is the context that Paul is talking to a city of 700,000. I made that point, two thirds are slaves, so it's a wealthy city. It's a pagan city. Um, um, the temple of Aphrodite is there with a thousand temple prostitutes. So given over to idolatry, um, we, we found out that there is a synagogue uh, because um, Rome removed the Jews from Rome and they were dispersed from there. Some of them ended up in Corinth. Corinth would have been the wealthiest and um, city in Paul's day. Um, I've been showing on the screen the reason for that is that they had two ports. And the commerce of Corinth was um, where they made a lot of money. Therefore, two-thirds of the uh, population actually had slaves. Uh, they had some form and knowledge of Judaism, as we'll see this morning, but not of biblical Christianity. So Paul, as we get into chapter three, and I'm gonna contrast this in just a little bit with the book of Hebrews, is that he's going into chapter three, after giving a little background in chapters one and two, that... Um, they know absolutely nothing about what it means to be a Christian. And he's gonna start using the Old Testament to begin to lay the, the, the groundwork of what it means to be a believer. And um, uh, we'll be hopping around quite a bit this morning. I would like to talk about two main topics. And that's Paul beginning to explain what being a Christian is and how it was an Old Testament fulfillment of Judaism. So Paul has to go back to explain to the Corinthians the Jewish people and how they got started. And he'll use Moses as an example in the Ten Commandments. And he has to start somewhere, so that's where he's going to start. Now, keep in mind, they've never heard any of this. Now I'm gonna contrast so that you get a feel for where we're going this morning. When Paul wrote to the Hebrews, and I'm quoting from Hebrews chapter five, the extreme on the other side, from knowing nothing and having um, beginning to understand the gospel and receiving that little glory, to where Paul is now writing to the Hebrews, and I'm quoting chapter five, verse 17, where he's getting on them by saying, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the first principles. Well, that's what he's doing to the Corinthians, the first principles. Or of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. Paul is talking to the Corinthians on a level that they're babes in Christ. 
And we read in Peter, as newborn babes in Christ, what are we to desire? The pure milk of the word, so that you can grow. Grow from what? The title of our message, from glory to glory. And so it goes on to say, for everyone who practices only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness because he's a babe. The Corinthians were babes. For solid food belongs to those who are full age, that, that is, those by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And then he says, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, in other words, the ABCs of what you would teach a new believer so that they can understand what Christianity is all about. And there are six things that are listed here. Um, Not laying again uh, the foundation of repentance from dead works, of faith towards God, the doctrine of baptism, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Well, Paul's not going to get anywhere near this. This would still be farther along for a Corinthian. But are you following me so far with my contrast? We have these Hebrews who by now should be teachers, but they're not. So he's got to go back and go through it all over with them again. So as you go back to Second um, uh, Corinthians uh, chapter 4 here, the second thing, so the first thing we want to deal with is that Paul uses this um, example of, with Moses and the law to begin to get them to understand what they've given themselves to as new, new believers. Now the second point that I wanna bring out this morning is uh, to explain to them why he does what he does, what Paul does. And that is the Great Commission. If you look at verse, um, um, well, which is, gives him his meaning and purpose in life. Uh, In this case, uh, these new believers who have never heard really the gospel before. Now, if we look at chapter three, verse one, uh, I'll bring this out in more detail when we get to two. Second Corinthians four, verse, chapter three, verse one. Do we begin again to commend ourselves or do we need, as some others, epistles or condemnation to those of letters of commendation from you? And then he says, you are our epistle. In other words, what makes me, me, Paul is saying, is you. Because I have the opportunity to be acknowledged that the instrument that God used to present the gospel was me. So he's saying, he's pointing to himself, you are our epistle. You are what we glory in. Written in our hearts and read by men. And so in verses two and three, um, Paul's saying that um, you're the reason we are. And we're nothing special. He goes on, we read in verse three, 
You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and ready by men. You are manifested an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the spirit of the living God. On tablets of stone, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is of the heart. In other words, Paul say, I'm doing what I'm doing, and my glory is where I get my glory from is the privilege. Uh, he was saying in another place, it's the love of Christ that constrains me to do what I do. So Paul is basically saying, you're my epistle. What you accepting the Lord means everything to me. And it gives me purpose and it gives me meaning and um, satisfaction. And we have such trust through Christ, verse four, towards God. Not that we're sufficient of ourselves uh, to think of anything as being from ourselves. Remember Peter and John um, uh, healed the guy going into the temple and um, um, nobody could deny that a miracle had been done. And when the scribes and Pharisees started to rag on Peter and John, it says, uh, they noticed that they were uneducated and unlearned, but they had been with Jesus. The Bible says God chooses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. Good place for amen. You realize you just called yourself a fool? (laughs) Not that we are sufficient. Of course we're not. We're no different than anybody else. And we should never give the impression that we have one step up on another person. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All in the Greek means all. And in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. And my heart and your heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? I mean, there's not even a little bit of good in there somewhere, Dwight? No. If you think there is, then you found yourself up against what the Bible teaches about our flesh. That in my flesh, Paul says, nothing good dwells. Now, if something good comes out, it says every perfect and good gift comes from where? From above. So we can't take credit for it because the Lord gave it to us. That's where the expression, well, praise the Lord. That's where it comes from. And you do something for somebody and they say, well, thank you very much. And you can be gracious and say you're welcome. But in the back of your head, you better be saying, all the glory, Lord, goes to you. I get real suspicious of ministries that um, name the name of the ministry after themselves. I have all kinds of red flags going up um, with that. And um, um, so with that much being said, let's continue on to verse through five here. We read it, not that we're sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Well, Corinthians are getting saved. And they had to be admiring looking up to. So one of the first things he wants to make straight is look, we're no different. We're the same, except that 
Uh, you're in the milk right now, and like Mark was sharing, that was 40 years ago, Mark. Well, Mark was on milk 40 years ago, okay? But here he is 40 years later, instead of taking it in, what's he doing? He's up here passing it out. And we're being changed from that baby infancy, a baby Christian, from glory. That's, and that's our last verse here. I'll skip to it, I'll read it twice. Uh, but we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, from babe to mature. And it's a process. So, um, with that much of a sort of an idea where we're headed this morning, Paul begins to explain in verses six through eight the transition from the Old Testament commandment. I mean, it's got to start somewhere. Uh, to the New Testament covenant. Where did the two join? How did the first one begin in the first place? So to do that, he goes back, and let's go to Exodus chapter 34. We will skip all of um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Joseph, um, being raised up in Egypt, 400 years in Egypt. Paul doesn't even go, go there. Um, he starts basically with Moses. And in chapter 34, um, let's read verses um, 1 uh, through 4. And the Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone, notice, like the first ones. Well, what do you mean, like the first ones? Well, the, fir- the first ones when Charlton Heston was coming down the mountain and he saw them dancing and drinking nakedly under this golden calf. Um, you've all seen the movie. He takes the commandments and does what with them? He breaks them. And so when we read here, cut two stones of tablets like the first ones. So this is now the second time. And I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. So be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. And no man shall come up with you and let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flock nor herd feed before that mountain. So he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Then Moses rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and he took uh, his hand and the two tablets of stone. Um, It gets into the rest of this, most of this chapter is the very nature and character of the Lord, that he is um, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. But I'm gonna fast forward to verse 29, and we now have Moses coming down from the mountain. Now, it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of testimony were Moses' hand, 
when he came down from the mountain uh, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. So when Aaron and the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Uh, Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation uh, returned to him, and Moses talked with them. And afterwards, all the children of Israel came near and gave them as commandments, all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with him, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out. And he would come out and speak to the children of Israel, uh, whatever he had been commanded. And whoever the children of Israel And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put on the veil and his face again until he went in to speak with him. Now, if we just read this part right here, um, we would get the impression that the veil was there um, so the people um, would would not see the glowing, shining face come off of Moses. But it is explained to us in 2 Corinthians 4 why the veil was put on. If we just read this, we'd get one impression. And that's why it's important to compare scripture with scripture. So turn back to 2 Corinthians. And we're looking at um, chapter 3, verse... Seven, let's read it again. We're talking about Moses here in the stones. But if the ministry of death written on engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadfastly at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, and then what does it say? Which glory was passing away. It was diminishing, not increasing. And you may not think that's significant for right now, but believe me, it has a lot to do with the the transition as Paul is beginning to lay this foundation so that they can understand that there is going to be a transition from the Old Testament covenants to a new covenant that will be established. Now, in verse 6 of Second um, Corinthians 3, we read, who has made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter of the, of, not of the letter, but of the spirit. When it says not of the letter, it is a reference to the commandments. And there weren't just 10. There were 613. And so, He's telling us it's not of the letter of, of, uh, that Moses had. Uh, for the letter, what does it say? The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. When Moses came down the first time, we read the first um, verses that this was done the second time, 
the first time Moses came down and he broke the tablets. He said, who's ever with the Lord, come on over here. And whoever isn't, go over there. And he also had the Levites take the swords and killed everybody that was um, involved with this. The day that the law was given, it tells us that 3,000 people died. What does it tell us here in verse six? The letter kills. And and we have a picture given to us here that by trying to keep 613 (laughs) commandments, much less the 10, uh, if you ask people if... uh, you think you're going to heaven? Yeah, let me think about it. I'm not that bad. Yeah, I think I am. Oh, so you never stole anything? Well, yeah, I, I stole something. I used to steal money out of my mother's purse. I used to steal from the hardware store. Uh, so what does that make you? Well, it makes you a thief. What does the law say about thieves? Thou shalt not steal. And so by the law, there has not been one person alive. I don't know, but one of the guys at men's prayer was sharing yesterday. And as he was witnessing to to his friend, and they were talking about um, uh, COVID, and he, he wasn't making any ground with him, and he says, you know what? There is something much more deadlier than COVID. And he says, what? And he said, sin. And he says, if you've broken, we'll get to it in Romans, but if you've broken just one of them, you're guilty of all of them. Good place for an amen? If you've broken one, you've broken them all. And you stand, uh, as the scripture said, all of sin and come short of the glory of God. Well, on the other hand, we go on to read here, but the spirit gives life. Now, Jesus talked about the coming of the Holy Spirit. He says, it's expedient that I leave absolutely necessary that I go back to to be with my father because if I don't then I won't be able to send the comforter and when he comes he will convict the world of sin and as a result of that conviction it will cause people to repent and be born again so we read here the contrast the law kills but the spirit gives life Oh, by the way, there was one person, one person in all of human history. Um, This is 2021. You know why it's 2021? We mark time itself. This time of season, I don't mean to shatter anybody's um, Christmas dreams and being a Scrooge right now, but Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. I know that's a real newsmaker for a lot of you, but you'll get over it eventually. But there was one man who walked this planet who never sinned, not once, in thought, word, or deed. Jesus said, don't think that I've come to destroy the law. I've not come to destroy it. I've come to fulfill it. And he lived the perfect life. And he died on Passover, and that Passover lamb had to be inspected, male of the first year, without any blemishes. 
and only then could it be offered up. And uh, before they would offer up that lamb, they would take that lamb into their own house with the kids for four days. What do you suppose happened with a cute little lamb and, and the kids? Well, they warmed up to him. And they got emotionally attached to the lamb. And now dad says, now we're going to offer that lamb as a sacrifice for Passover. So Jesus, we read in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, is our, or 5, is our Passover lamb. Uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. If, if the law kills, in Acts chapter 2, 50 days after Passover, we have Pentecost. Pente, 50, is verse 1. Now, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were in one accord in one place. And the Holy Spirit falls upon them. And um, all the different Jews from the different nations, from um, uh, the Medes and uh, Asia, Cappadocia, uh, Rome, um, were in Jerusalem to keep the feast. And all of a sudden, they heard um, languages and they understood that even though it wasn't a language that they knew, they understood it, that they were um, saying, as it says in verse 11, we hear them speaking with our own tongues the wonderful works of God. The Spirit fell upon the apostles, and they began to speak in tongues, but they were tongues from other nations about all the glorious things of the Lord. Well, they said, these guys are full of new wine. And Peter got up and said, nonsense, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. And he quotes, and whenever I quote an Old Testament scripture, remember we want to connect the two? He says, no, that's not what's happening here. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, that uh, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will see visions, and your young men will dream dreams. And he goes on, and he preaches the whole gospel. Now, we read in John that the first work of the Holy Spirit is to convict a person of their sin. And rather than excuse it away and say, I am this way because um, um, it's an attribute that I inherited from mom and dad, and that's why I am the way that I am, and basically excusing it, it away. And... Peter gets up to explain that's not the case at all. God sent his son into the world and he worked and we lived and talked with him and walked with him and ate with him, observed him every day for three days, three years. And we know that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah and he came to die for your sins. And when they heard that, Um, 36 of Acts 2, therefore all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified 
both Lord and Christ. And now when they heard this, they were what? Cut to the heart. Oh, maybe I'm not such a good person after all. And there was conviction. And as I like to say, there can be no conviction. There could be no conversion without conviction. You have to recognize that you are a sinner. And that's what happened. Cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, better brethren, what shall we do? And Peter says, you guys need to repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And then you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 41. And those who gladly received his words were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to the church. Turn back with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we read in verse 6 that the letter or the law kills. How many people died when the commandments were thrown down? 3,000. Is it a coincidence or is it just me that on the day that the Holy Spirit was given, we have 3,000 that were saved. Now, I know you. I know the flock pretty good, okay? And you know me pretty good. And you say, Dwight, you've told us that 100 times. We know that. But guess what? The Corinthians didn't know that. They're hearing this all for the first time. There's people watching a live stream all over the world that have never heard it. They're hearing it for the first time. And maybe they're not saved. And they go, man, that's a miraculous coincidence, isn't it? And they're beginning to think things through a little bit deeper that maybe there's more to this book than what I'm giving it credit for. It's no coincidence. The law kills, how many? 3,000. Spirit gives life, how many? 3,000. Just a coincidence? I don't think so. And what does that do? When you see little nuggets like that, little treasures that the Holy Spirit slips in there, faith comes by hearing, What are we doing this morning? We're hearing. And hearing comes by the word of God. And when you teach through it, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, you stumble upon these things. You go, wow, that fits together pretty good. Maybe man didn't have anything to do with this book. Maybe all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable and it is inerrant. What does that mean? Without error, all of it. And that's why Jesus is the only way. Now, however, having just um, put down the law, what Paul is doing with the Corinthians is however the law had its purpose and Paul explains to us in his epistle to the Galatians, the importance of why there had to be a law. Remember, he's building a foundation. He's teaching them things of of, uh, what just happened to them. So turn with me to uh, Galatians chapter three, and let's pick up at verse 10. Galatians three, verse 10. And um, let me just, uh, this is not my notes that I'm just thinking about it. But um, if you come to Calvary Chapel, uh, sometimes I'm, I'm walking in and, and uh, 
I see, I see people walking in, but there's nothing in their hands. And I said, you see, when you come to Calvary Chapel, you're supposed to bring your Bible. And if you don't have one, you say, I'm lazy, well, I'll just use the one in front of me. Here's a great New Year's resolution. If you're not bringing your Bible to church, uh, between you and the Lord, say, I'm gonna start bringing my Bible to church, and when Pastor Dwight says turn to, I'm not just gonna look at him. I'm going to be looking down and I'm going to be turning to Galatians chapter 3. So if you didn't bring your Bible this morning, there's one right in front of you. Would you grab it, please? We're practicing now, okay? And uh, um, well, we're turning to Galatians um, chapter 3. It's on page uh, 1,188, okay? Just to help out you newcomers a little bit here. All right, so we have... Um, Galatians 3, picking up in verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. You see, there's nothing wrong with the law. The law is good. The law is not the problem. We're the problem but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed, here's the connection, For it is written, Deuteronomy 21, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That the blessings of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant Yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say unto the seeds as of many, but as one. So he's making a distinction here. It's not plural. It's singular. He does not say seeds, plural, but seed. And your seed... And then he tells us who it is. It's Christ. One person, one seed. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come. Now we're connecting it. We started with the law being given, but now it's being connected to uh, the, the promise through Christ. Till the promise should come to whom the promise was made and it was appointed through angels by the hands of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, 
but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believed. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. Kept for the faith which would afterwards be revealed. Therefore, this is an important verse concerning the law. Therefore, the law was our tutor. In other words, the law was our teacher. It was preparing us, it was teaching us. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, now there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Here he begins to blend and explain the importance of, you can't keep the law, but that doesn't necessarily mean it was bad. No, it was our tutor showing us that we can't do it, that it has to be that singular seed, Jesus Christ, who accomplished what we within ourselves were not able to do. Um, let's turn back to Second Corinthians chapter, I want to look at three for a second, and draw your attention to verse um, nine through 17. For if the, I want to make sure, not, yeah, okay. For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, then the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For, if what is passing away was glorious, huh, what was passing away? How did we start our Bible study this morning? With a veil. What was underneath the veil? What was happening to Moses' face? It was passing away. And um, uh, it's brought up again here. It was passing away. If that was glorious, what remains is more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, Therefore, since we have such hope, I'm going to say it a third time again for effect. Therefore, we have such hope, we speak with boldness of speech. This is going to be, become a very major part of our study this morning. Because of this, and we're aware that we're really not, nothing more than instruments, unprofitable servants, that it's the Lord working through us, then I can speak with great boldness. Unlike Moses who put a veil over his face 
so that the children of Israel could not look steadfastly at the end, notice again, what was passing away. That's not the impression you would get if you would just read the Old Testament. But the New Testament explains, no, it's gonna change from what? From glory to glory. You have baby Christians who know absolutely nothing, they're hearing all this for the first time, and then you have the Apostle Paul explaining to him with Moses, this glory, the law, it's good, but it's passing away into not seeds, but a single seed. And they're, try to put yourself, and we're all there at one time, where somebody's telling us about the Lord. And they're doing it with great boldness. And um, let me also say this. If you're not born again and somebody is talking to you about Jesus, you're not gonna get any of it. Matter of fact, it's impossible for you to get any of it. What do you mean, Dwight? Well, it says the natural man, that means the man who's not born again, cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God because they're spiritually undiscerning. You have to be born again to understand the things of the Spirit of God. Good place for an amen. And so if you're wrestling with somebody right now and they're just not getting it, (laughs) you can tell them you're not getting it because you're not born again. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, Nick, I don't know if you call him Nick or not. Nicodemus, you must be born again. He has to. Otherwise, you're just not gonna get it. And he didn't get it. Well, I don't get it. Do I go into my mother's womb and come out again? Nope. Adding it. But that's all Nicodemus can come up with. So we'll finish the rest up till verse 18. But here the point was passing away the glory. But their minds were hardened, for until the day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. And what happens? Pentecost, they were cut to the heart. Well, now what do we do? Well, you need to repent and give your life to the Lord and be baptized. But even to this day when Moses is read, the veil lies on our heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Oh. Being a product of the 60s, it was always wanting to be a free spirit and live free and uh, be able to do what you want, when you want, go when you want, wherever you want. And uh, it was an illusion of freedom, having hindsight on it now. But Jesus said, when you learn the truth, the truth will set you free. And you can only truly be free when you're in the Lord. Why? Because it doesn't have, your salvation has absolutely nothing to do with you. Good place for an amen. I say this all the time, if, I am, if I'm any part of the equation of making it on my own, I'm excluded. And I know it all too well. And so we read here, but we all with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror, 
the glory of the Lord, I'm not reading 18 yet. I gotta close with 18, so I gotta stop at 17. So hold that thought. Remember Paul teaching, again, people who are hearing this for the first time. Explaining the transition from the Old Testament law to the New Testament justified by faith by believing in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Works. Most people that you know, ask them, are you going to heaven? Well, they'll probably say yes. The disciples ask the same question. If you're taking notes, John 6, verses 27 through 29. The Lord says, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, when the Son of Man will give you, because the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, well, what shall we do that we could do the work and works of God? And Jesus said, here's what you have to do. This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So, turn with me to 2 Corinthians 3, verses, uh, well, we've been that, 15 and 16. Um, Turn with me now to the book of Romans, chapter 11. Most of you are familiar with replacement theology. For those of you who are hearing it for the first time, basically it's this. Because the Jews rejected Christ, God has rejected them and the promises that he made to Abraham are now inherited by the church and God is through working with Israel and all the promises that he gave to Israel are null and void and we have inherited. The theological terminology is replacement theology. The promises are being replaced from Israel and they're giving to the church. And that's what we're addressing right now, the question, is God through with Israel? Romans chapter 11, verse one through 10, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people, whom he foreknew, Or do you not know what the scripture says? There we go, Old Testament again, of Elijah. How he pleaded with God against Israel saying, Lord, you have killed your prophets. They've killed your prophets and torn down your altars. Uh, I'm the only one left and they want to kill me. Uh, But what does the divine response say to him? The Lord says, I've reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed their knee to Baal. Even so, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, it is no longer of works. That's what the Old Testament is all about. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it's of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, works is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as um, 
it is written, here it is again, God has given them the spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear to this very day. Then he quotes David, and he says, and their tables became a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down uh, their backs again. So no, he is not done with them. Basically what's going on is God made a promise in Daniel chapter nine that he would work with Israel for a period of 490 years. 483 of those 490 years were fulfilled on Palm Sunday, April 6, 32 AD. So 483 years, Palm Sunday, April 6, 32 AD, clock stopped. It's gonna start again, because God promised them 490, not 483. So in the meantime, when they rejected, Paul said, I'm gonna go to the Gentiles. You Jews are just arguing with me all the time, and so I'm gonna shake the dust off my cloak, and I'm just gonna go teach to the Gentiles. Just a little rabbit trail here. If you've been witnessing this somebody, and they've made it plain to you they just don't want to hear it anymore, and they're serious about it. You say, fine, what do you do? The Bible says we're not to cast our pearls before swine. Pretty graphic language, wouldn't you agree? Something as valuable as the word of God, throwing it out to somebody who could care absolutely less, and you've worked with them, and you've worked with them, and you've worked with them, it's okay to say, fine, I'm gonna go to somebody who might listen to me. Good place for an amen. And uh, the Lord, by the way, said the same thing. Um, No, he hasn't cast them away. Now in 15, um, through, I want to pick it up in verse 15 of uh, Romans 11. For if they're being cast away, and I want you to think about this because there's a lot of anti-Semitism going on in the world. I hear about it every single day about the rise of anti-Semitism against the Jewish people. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? The clock stopped temporarily. I believe it's about to start ticking again really, really soon. For the first fruits is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, with them, they then became partakers of the root and the fatness of the olive branch. Now catch this church. Do not boast against the branches. Be careful how you talk about God's chosen people. Why? Oh, I will bless those who bless them and I will curse those who curse them. That's why. In other words, he's telling the Romans here, be careful, church, 
with your attitude against the Jewish people. You were just grafted in. The real deal is Israel. Jesus is Jewish. All the early church was, they were Jewish until Cornelius got saved. And so he's actually, the scriptures are admonishing us right now. I tell somebody if they're a Jew, oh, I like you better than my Gentile friends. And they look at me strange and say, well, what for? Because I'm greedy, that's what I tell them. Because I know if I bless you, I'll get blessed. And so he's actually admonishing the church here, be careful, church, what you say about Jewish people, no matter what they are, they're still God's chosen people. And he has not cast them off, he has a remnant. And do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Can you see what Paul's doing here? Tying the old covenant and the law in with grace? You will see then, because branches were broken off that I might be grafted in, it could be said because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith, do not be haughty, but fear. Not too many Bible studies I've heard on that. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Ooh, there's a lot of theology in that one verse. I'm gonna leave it there because it is one of the most controversial ones in the scriptures. Therefore, consider the goodness and the severity of God. On those who fell severity, but towards you goodness. The big little word if here, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Ooh, there's that theological, one of the most um, debated issues in the Bible. Is that possible? I'm not gonna try to explain away what I just read. I'm just gonna leave it for what it says and let you deal with it. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own tree? So we read, we'll go through 27 here. For I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of this mystery lest you should be wise in your own opinions, that hardening in part has happened to Israel. Why? So that the church age could exist, so that Gentiles could come to the Lord. Um, That you should not be wise in your own opinions, but hardening in part has happened to Israel. When? Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What does that mean? That means there's a set number. We're told 3,000 people got saved on the day of Pentecost. Is that not a set number? You think God is still keeping track? Don't you think he has a set number, knows exactly what that number is? And when that number comes in and gets saved, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, it's implying there's a set number that make up the church. And usually at this point, I like to say this, 
If you're sitting here and you're understanding all this, you're not giving your life to the Lord, would you please get your act together? I would like to go home. Good place for an amen. All right, get it together. (laughs) Wake up. (laughs) Then what happens? Verse 26, and so Israel will be saved. We enter in after the rapture of the church into a period of time where God will deal with that seven-year period of time that will complete the 490 years that God promised Israel back in Daniel chapter nine. He spoke it, it can't be changed, it must be fulfilled. And for seven years, Israel's going to go through a refining process. And they're going to be ministered to by the two that they look up more to probably in the Old Testament than anybody else, Moses and Elijah. And there will be a great revival during this period of time. So it says, and so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, a deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. God is not through with the remnant. He will work with them. There's a lot of you uh, that are getting ready for the holidays and um, we can turn back and read our final verse, verse 18, 2 Corinthians 4. And let's just give me a quick review. Let's keep it in context. Who is Paul talking to? He's talking to baby Christians that know squat. They don't know anything. So how does he lay it out to them in a way that they can understand it? Uh, in a way that um, they go, oh, okay, I'm beginning to get that. They're in milk, milk of the word. And so what they have, when the lights go on, so to speak, we can say that they have a little glory, right? All right, somebody like Paul, who is um, um, mature, chiding the Hebrews because he says, you guys should be teachers by now. But I still gotta feed you milk because um, you're still dealing with elementary principles. Well, this is how I got saved and blah, 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 blah. No, if you've been in the Lord for any length of time at all, then what was the terminology that Paul used? He said, I speak with great boldness. Great boldness. And then what was he doing? He was teaching in great boldness. And as I'm, I'm thinking this through, and it's the holiday season right now, um, I guess all I want for Christmas is great boldness, or greater boldness. You're gonna, all of us, Christmas, have, you know, you're gonna get a present of some sort, and you're gonna be excited about it, and you go, yeah, I really like it. And uh, a week later, then what? <laughs> what did I get for Christmas anyway? I really don't remember. In other words, it's not lasting, it's not really satisfying, because it's not what Paul has. Paul says, this is what I have that's not gonna go away. You're my epistle. In other words, throughout all eternity, there are people that are gonna come up to you and say, you're the guy, you're the gal that told me about Jesus Christ and I am forever, eternally grateful for you. 
Now that is a gift that keeps on giving. Forever and ever and ever. And that's why Paul says, um, you are my epistle. This is what turns me on. This is what makes me have a lot of glory. From glory, baby Christian, to glory. And that's verse 18 of chapter three. But we all with unveiled faces beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. What? Yeah, we're being transformed to be more like Jesus. How? From glory to glory. When you see that what's really important in life is sharing with people, letting it out, and um, not being intimidated. Do you know that they are after the church today? It's part of the little spoof that we put up there. Oh, you're one of those. And um, um, Christianity today is under attack. It does not fit in with the globalist agenda. And you don't need me to tell you that. But just because you are, you are marked. And people are watching you. So as we consider um, what really satisfies and what doesn't, I want to close with this application. I was actually sitting down watching a movie and um, the Lord says, get up, go out and write this down and this is how we're going to, I want you to end the study on Sunday morning. And I go, okie dokie. So I got up, went to the kitchen table. I didn't have time to have Thomas get a picture of this, but uh, when you go to Israel, the Jordan River begins and comes out of the mountains of Mount Hermon. Crystal clear, absolutely gorgeous. And then it flows down to the northern side of uh, the Sea of Galilee, right around Chorazin, Bethsaida. We go over the little bridge, we stop, go, there's your Jordan, it's coming into the Sea of Galilee. And then when you get down to the southern end of the Sea of Galilee, there's a kibbutz there called Ma'agan, beautiful little place. The Jordan River uh, leaves the Sea of Galilee and about a quarter mile down the road is where we have a baptismal site. And so we stop there. And we usually tell the people during the baptism, um, there's gonna be these little tiny fish and they're gonna come up and nibble on you while you're being baptized. Don't let it freak you out. (laughs) But we tell them ahead of time. And my point is, there's life in Caesarea Philippi. Uh, There's fish up there, there's trout as a matter of fact. And there's all kinds of fish in the Sea of Galilee. And there's fish in the Jordan River. And it continues and it goes all the way down to the Dead Sea. And this is what the Lord wanted me to share in closing this this morning. There's life in the Sea of Galilee. There's life in the Jordan River. But as it flows into the Dead Sea, there's nothing there. It's dead. No life. Why is it dead? Because there's no outlet. Life comes in, but life can't Go out because there is no outlet. What's your point, Dwight? Let it out. Jesus said, he who lives and believes in me, 
out of the innermost part of his being will flow living waters. I'm saying this as a word of admonishment and encouragement to speak it. Uh, Don't care about what people think about you. That should be a non-issue. You should be looking at that person as, hey, you, you could be my epistle. You could be an instrument that God could use or I could actually lead you to the Lord. Step out in faith. Speak it. Well, what if I'm not a very good communicator? Well, neither was Moses, right? And um, yet God says, don't worry about it. I'll I'll put the words in your mouth. You just do it. Well, what if you don't do it? Well, then you're gonna end up like the Dead Sea. And you're still saved, yeah. But uh, your impact and your treasures in heaven are gonna be radically different. I lied. That wasn't the last thing I was gonna share with you. Some of you are thinking, Dwight, you're just being Dwight. This I read yesterday, and I thought, this is a good way to end the study, Lord. So this was yesterday, December 18th, and it's called First Love, and I will close with this. It's to the church of Ephesus. From outward appearances, Ephesus was a fine, one fine, well-organized church, but a vital ingredient was missing, their first love. How important is that first love? It's more important than all of our works put together. Yet, typically, many churches today have forgotten this. Like Ephesus, they have become so organized that they can function without the presence of the Lord. But God is not interested in the works that you might do out of a sense of obligation. He wants your works to flow out of your heart for your love for him. The reason I'm reading this is because the word flow was in it. What is the motive behind your works, question? Are you working out of habit, tradition, the desire to make a name for yourself? Or your motive, or is your motive love for your savior? Remember therefore where you have fallen, repent and do the first work, Revelation 2.5. This is the word of the Lord to the church of Ephesus. And it's word to you if you have lost your first love, remember. He said, remember the love you felt when Jesus first lifted that heavy guilt of sin off your life. Remember the reckless abandonment you felt because you loved him so much. You had to tell somebody. And then he said, repent. Godly sorrow, the Bible tells us, leads us to repentance. And repentance involves a change. And lastly, Jesus said, return or repeat. Go back and do the first work Uh, reading, worshiping, and fellowshipping together. If you do these things, remember, repent, and return. Your love for God will be rekindled. Be more bold. From glory to glory, if you let it flow, if you keep Jesus as your first love, you will find your passion for Jesus once again. Amen? Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you as we take a little more in-depth look on how Paul, how you showed Paul how to 
teach these baby brand new Christians who do, did not know anything how you use Moses and the law and the transition, how it would transition into the Messiah coming and that there was a church established uh, in Corinth. So Lord, uh, we thank you for your word this morning. We are going to be getting together with family and friends um, this year. There's gonna be a lot of conversation going on. Uh, We wanna be like Paul, Lord. And if we don't have that boldness, that flowing uh, where there's life, we don't want to clam up and become a dead sea. But Lord, um, put your spirit in us and allow just our love for you to be our only motive uh, to have a heart for somebody who may not be born again. We thank you for your word this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.